Maybe this has happened to you, where it's a warm day, you're sitting around, and somebody makes a comment like, wow, this weather did not used to be like this. This is global warming. What do you do in that situation? You could nod politely. You could think to yourself, well, isn't it climate change and isn't it complicated because some areas are going to get warmer and others will get cooler and wetter? And like, what do you do? My name is Mike Drockers, and for this episode of my favorite lecture, Humboldt State's Rich Boone will go to the data. And he'll take you along on a fact-based exploration of what we know about climate change. Recorded live at the Plaza View Room in Arcata, California, Boone discusses climate change fact, fiction, and forecasts. You'll hear the sound of ice fields rupturing, you'll hear a hip-hop history of atmospheric gases, and you'll hear great questions from the live audience. And as you listen, you can go over to khsu.org to see some of the images and videos that Boone is referencing during the lecture. Boone himself has spent 20 years in Alaska, where the effects of climate change are more visible than down in the lower 48. And before the lecture got started, we asked him, did Alaskans feel more urgency around this problem? Absolutely. There's no question about climate change in Alaska. From sea level rise in villages like Shishmaref, a native village that will have to relocate. We can also see the effects on the thawing of permafrost. Cost of maintaining the road system in Alaska is also rising as soils begin to thaw. Your field of study as it pertains to you as an individual, you study very dramatic and very serious things. How do you deal with daily life with this looming over your head? How do you manage that? I have hope. I do have hope. Otherwise, I wouldn't be giving the talk tonight. What is the next phase for climate science? Well, I actually think that the next phase is really adaptation, better forecasting for the future, and also a stronger intersection with the policy realm. Uh, scientists for too long have not been speaking out to policymakers, have not been engaged in government, essentially. Why not? I think that they're not trained to do that. I think there's some reluctance on the part of scientists, but that's been changing dramatically over the past decade or two. Um, I think scientists now realize they have a responsibility to society to, to tell politicians what they know and to provide advice. I think scientists now realize, certainly those that study climate science, we have a responsibility as citizens to step forward. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my favorite lecture. This is the kickoff for season two. Uh, we had three lectures last year. We're going to do three this year. Uh, this is the first. We're, we're really excited, and we want to thank, uh, again, you for being here. Also, there's some people in the audience. President Rossbacher is here. Supervisor Mike Wilson is here. Thanks for coming. Do we have any KHSU listeners here? That's right. That's right. Fun drive coming up. <laughs> Rich Boone is the new dean of the College of Natural Resources and Science at Humboldt State University. I printed his resume out. It's heavy. It's, I mean, the printer just kept spitting pages out. But the greatest hits kind of go like this. He is uh, a specialist in Arctic science. He spent a long time in beautiful Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, he is an ecosystem ecologist. And if that doesn't cover all the bases, then biogeochemistry should. <laughs> Please make welcome Rich Boone. Thank you for having me. When I came up with the title, I 
put up fiction somewhat in jest. And in fact, it's a word that's really important today because it has a linkage to the term alternative facts. <laughs> and one point I want to make about the talk is I'm not going to talk about fiction in this talk. I'm going to focus on facts primarily. Why am I now talking about fiction? Because science does not deal with alternative facts. It deals with alternative hypotheses. And what do we try to do as scientists? We try to disprove those things. And our job is to be skeptically objective. I've taught a course in global change biology for over 10 years. And what I began to think about as I prepared this talk was, what are the most important take-home messages that I would want my students to have at the end of a full semester? So that's what you'll get tonight in 15 minutes. Okay. There's a lot of climate change fatigue going around these days. And I have it myself sometimes. We'll end on a hopeful note. So then the facts, and there are 10 of them. Uh, I didn't try to copy David Letterman, really. But I do have the top 10 facts, OK, about climate change. And then lastly, indeed, what you can do at the end to be hopeful, because I am hopeful. Uh, my career started in Woods Hole, Massachusetts at the Marine Biological Laboratory. One of my first jobs after college was working on the global carbon model. I acquired early on a perspective of the globe as a system, biological system, a physical system. Because I worked on the global carbon cycle, I thought long and hard about how increases in CO2 from the landscape to the atmosphere was affecting climate. And early on, I became concerned about climate change because we knew about it back then in the 1970s. That date dates me a bit, of course. I want to fast forward to last year. I spent nearly 20 years of my career in Alaska. I came here last July from Fairbanks. Alaskans think about climate change all the time now. It doesn't matter what political party you belong to, you see it happening. There are more forest fires, they're more severe. Sea level is rising. Villages are facing being moved inland a bit. Soils are thawing that always were frozen before. And so people that built their homes on those soils are having difficulties, obviously, because of houses are tilting in some cases. Roads are buckling. So for Alaskans, climate change is not a theory. It's not a hoax. It's a reality. So the facts. Top 10 facts from my point of view in climate change. This is the easiest one, of course. The Earth is warming. 16 of the 17 warmest years on record, going back to the beginning of the instrumental period, 1880 or so, occurred after 2001. The last three years have been the three warmest years on record. Last year was the warmest. This is irrefutable. I should also mention something about graphs like this. This shows the anomaly. What does that mean? It means a, a difference from some baseline. And so when you see these graphs, think about the difference from what? And the difference here is the difference from the mean temperature from 1951 to 1980. So the mean annual temperature was calculated. And these are differences from that mean temperature over a 30-year period. Most graphs you'll see will show you the anomaly. This is eye-popping, and it's quick. It's an animation, and I'm not, I want to slow it down because, frankly, it makes me a bit jumpy. It moves so quickly. So here we go. We're going to start um, in 1880, and we're going to ramp forward to 2016. And obviously, the red, the brown, is warmer, and the blue is cooler. And this is all relative to a baseline of the mid-century temperature in the 20th century, a 30-year period in the middle. So this is the difference between that mean temperature and what we observed going back to 1880, again, with thermometers. <laughs> so here we go. 
That's today. That was 2016, the warmest year on record. Now, this is the sum of air temperature above land in the ocean. Okay? The reddest part up top in the Arctic is plus 2 degrees centigrade, um, nearly two times that as Fahrenheit, a little less. That's a huge temperature rise. So that's one fact. Second fact, and people get this confused all the time. Climate and weather are not the same. I, I, boy, it's really difficult. You hear people talking about, it was a cold winter, it was a really hot summer. It's irrelevant because they're not the same. And most people don't understand the difference between climate and weather. So what is weather? It's what we see outside the window right now. It's raining outside, a certain temperature, certain humidity, certain wind speed, certain direction. It's the conditions at the present. We had today's weather. We have tomorrow's weather. The conditions at the present, that is not climate. What is climate? Climate, according to climatologists, is the average temperature over a 30-year period. That's three decades. When you see the baseline for these graphs showing anomalies, the baseline now has been ramped forward from to 1980 to 2010, the next 30-year time chunk. Before it was 1951 to 1980. Another fact, number three. Climate change is not the same thing as climate variability. Here's some graphs showing temperatures, mean annual temperatures over a 100-year period. And these show different patterns for changes in temperature. Again, this is mean annual temperature. The top one, over 100 years, there's lots of up and down. That's typical. The second one down shows a decline from mean annual temperature. And those horizontal lines there are mean or baseline temperature. So again, this is the anomaly from a long-term average. Second one, the third one down here shows a cyclic pattern, year-to-year -year variability, but also the cyclic trend. And the last one, a short course, shows an abrupt drop in mean annual temperature, but with no change in year-to-year -year variability. So what is climate change versus variability? Climate change is a departure from average conditions, which means average over 30 years. Variability is variation around average conditions, not a departure from it. So the up and down over there at the top, that is not climate change. It's variability. Um, this is not climate change. That's variability. Number two there, that's climate change. And the bottom one, that's climate change. And there are variations of these patterns. Uh, one at the top, no change in the mean temperature, but an increase in variability. And you might be tempted to say that's climate change. It's not. It's not a departure from the long-term mean. Second one, two things going on there, a drop in the mean temperature and an increase in variability. And then maybe the worst case scenario, if you're a human, a drop in the mean temperature and an increase in variability, more extremely. Warm winters, warm years, and cool years in this case. So again, variability and change are not the same. Change is a departure from the average, variability, variation around the average. So given this, can you feel climate change? Can you know from your senses that climate's changing? Keep in mind, this is relative to a baseline of 30 years. 
Now, there are some people in the audience here that may be old enough to have lived here for 70 years, maybe. I haven't lived in the same place for more than 20. My guess is that very few people in the room can say what the temperature was like, the mean annual temperature was like 10 years ago, let alone last year. Remember last summer, maybe last winter, maybe last year was rainy or more dry. People's memories are faulty. Lifespans are short. It's a high bar to say you can remember what the, te- the mean temperature was like 30 years prior to today. That's unlikely. It's not something that's typical for humans to be able to do that. In fact, humans cannot do that. So if you see someone, you hear someone say, oh, definitely climate change, it's a lot hotter now, it's a lot colder, be very skeptical. So how do you handle this situation? I lived in Fairbanks for roughly 20 years. Do I know it's gotten warmer or not? I can't say based upon my observations. No. I'm a scientist. And there are some scientists in the room I know. So what do you do? You go to the data. That's what we do in science. We go to the data. We try to disprove hypotheses, and we go to the data. We do experiments. We take measurements. And we have data on temperature for many cities in the United States, including Fairbanks, where I came from. And because of the mastery of Troy Nicolini this morning at the Eureka National Weather Service office, I called him at 8.30. I have the results for Eureka. You think it's gotten warmer, cooler, not this, no change at all? I have the result. <laughs> It goes back to uh, 1887, by year, mean annual temperature for Eureka. Lots of up and down. Yeah, probably an upward trend. That's a linear line there. It's a linear fit with that up and down. It's a rise of about 2 degrees Fahrenheit from 1887 to 2016. So yes, indeed, Eureka has gotten a little bit warmer. Could anyone feel that? I doubt it. In fact, I know you couldn't. Fact number four. The Earth's climate has always been changing. It's nothing new. It has always changed and always will change. Paleoclimate has been around for a very long time. And we can go back before the instrumental record when we had thermometers or things such as tree rings and isotopes and ice cores. We can determine the climate from the past and what are called proxy measures, and we can validate those with temperature measurements done with thermometers in current, current period of time. As an example, um, top one is the last 180 million years relative to a baseline temperature of 15 degrees centigrade. Middle one is the last million years Again, relative to a baseline of 15 degrees centigrade. And the bottom one is the last 160,000 years. You don't see climate stability. You see lots of up and down. We know there have been multiple ice ages. We know the Pleistocene ended roughly 10, 12,000 years ago. Um, a place I used to like to go to in Boston, Fenway Park, once upon a time, that location was under a kilometer of ice or so. Interestingly, Fairbanks, Alaska was not under ice during the Pleistocene because it was too dry. Cold enough, but too dry. You need two things for ice, low temperature and precipitation, of course. Lots of up and down. So bottom line is, is that 
climate change is old news. And it will always be the way this planet behaves. Number four, climate change is complicated because there are multiple factors that affect it. We know about greenhouse gases, but there are aerosols, there are clouds, land use change. When you convert a forest parcel to a tilled field permanently, you increase the reflectivity of the surface. That's a cooling effect. So climate change is complicated. There are multiple factors, but there's some that we know a lot about, and boy, you can't see the red very well, unfortunately, given the lights. I will read this for you. The major things that promote warming are greenhouse gases. And the thing we're concerned about, of course, are the human-caused greenhouse gases, such as CO2, methane, nitrous oxide, primarily. But also keep in mind, the strongest greenhouse gas of all is water vapor. Without that, we would be a lot cooler than we are right now on the planet. But we don't release water vapor. It will rise as the globe gets warmer, but we don't contribute to otherwise to rising water vapor levels in the atmosphere. We do contribute to CO2. Some of the cooling effects from aerosols, clouds, land use change, they promote cooling. What's the net on balance? On balance, relative to the year 1750, the net balance is about plus 1.5 watts per square meter difference in the amount of energy the planet has trapped compared to 1750. Now that may not seem like a lot of energy, but it is. Keep in mind that over the long term, millennia, what controls the Earth's temperature is largely what are called the Earth's orbital cycles. The wobble of the Earth, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, which is not always the same, it's kind of accordion-like a bit, and also the tilt, which changes, the so-called Milankovitch cycles. Here's a more complicated graph showing the Earth's energy balance. And the main point here is that because of greenhouse gases in the troposphere here, which is about 10 kilometers thick on average, gets thinner towards the poles, fatter toward the tropics. Because this is warming up, there's less heat going up. So in fact, the warming that's occurring is in the troposphere. We care about the air we walk in. Temperature is measured roughly at one meter above the surface. That's what we care about. Plants pretty much too. Redwood trees, a little bit more height, obviously. Weather takes place in the troposphere. The troposphere has gotten warmed because the greenhouse gases and above the atmosphere has gotten cooler because the Earth is trapping more heat. How much is a watt or a watt and a half per square meter? My dramatization of this. I like Christmas tree lights. <laughs> so, you know, this unit is kind of hard to wrap your head around. A watt, watt and a half per square meter. Doesn't sound like a watt, does it? Think about this. Each of these bulbs is roughly a watt. Think about one of these bulbs, bulbs every square meter across the entire planet's surface, including the oceans. 71% of the area of the planet that's a lot of energy that's being trapped. And much of it, you'll see, is going to a place that's going to be releasing it very slowly for millennia in the future. Number six, most of the energy is not being trapped by the atmosphere. Most of the heat is not being trapped by the atmosphere. That's what we care about as humans, animals and plants care about. Think about where the energy may be going. 
Think about the surface of the planet. This is showing clouds and obviously the snow and ice cap in Antarctica. And when you look at the globe, the thing that pops out, of course, is all that water. And the fact of the matter is that most of the energy trapped by the planet has been trapped by the oceans, by far. And it's a good thing in a way because we're not warming as much as we might otherwise, but it's a bad thing because that energy is trapped by the oceans and eventually be released to the air above the ocean surface, slowly, for a very long time, on the order of millennia. This is a graph that simply shows where the energy has gone from, I don't know, 1970 or so to 2010. And this up here is the upper ocean, deep ocean, land, and you can't even see it down here, this little sliver, which is the energy that's been trapped by the atmosphere. And it's tiny, tiny, tiny. But the thing to keep in mind is that all this other energy above this little sliver, well, certainly above the land sliver, all this up above that represents energy trapped by the ocean will in time be re-released to the air above the ocean surface. It's a long-term radiator. And the reality is if we stop CO2 emissions today, unfortunately, this is our warming future from the oceans that are already a lot warmer than they were before greenhouse gases began to increase in the atmosphere. Number 10. Seven, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Number seven. Number 10's good. <laughs> it is good, actually. Seriously. I, I saved a good one at the end. Um, fossil fuels. You know, again, this, you know, one of the things about climate change that's tricky is the concept of time. In climate, you need 30 years, right, to figure out what the climate is. Humans live to be 70, 80, 90 years, maybe, maybe 100. It's hard to have perspective on how society has changed, how temperature has changed, how climate has changed, because we have relatively short lifespans, and also because our memories are pretty short, actually. And I want to dramatize something about how recent fossil fuels have been part of, the, of our society. It's new, really, really new, actually. So, for example, here is the person who's credited with drilling the first oil well in the world, commercial oil well, after the Civil War, um, Edwin Drake, about the time of the Civil War, I should say, first productive oil well in Titus, Pennsylvania, I think a Quaker State Motor Oil, of course, when I see this. Um, that was the first commercial oil well, um, 1859. Now, coal had been mined before that, of course, but there wasn't much coal production or consumption really until the beginning of the 1800s or so, latter part of the 1700s, when the Industrial Revolution really required a lot of energy to fuel it. So in fact, the release of CO2 from coal wasn't so high really until about 1800 or so. Oil came on the scene, 1859, in terms of a commercial product. Now this may seem like a long time ago, but is it really that long ago? And so this put, this put the time scale in perspective for me, the, the, the fact that this is not that old, not that long ago. So again, we're 1859, first oil well. And here's a picture of my grandparents. My grandmother made great peach pie, really a fantastic cook. Um, she was born, oh, you can't see it, darn it. She was born in 1891. 
32 years after the first commercial oil well was drilled, which means that her mother, my great-grandmother, was alive when that first commercial oil well was drilled. That's not that long ago. I knew my grandmother well. Her mom was alive when oil became a commercial product in the world. That's recent. So the fossil fuel contribution to uh, the increase of CO2 in the atmosphere is really pretty recent in human, on a human scale. And that's three generations for me, back to my great-grandmother. She was alive then. This is also a scale that, that hits me. This is a graph that came from work that I did in the late 1970s, early 1980s in Woods Hole. I mentioned I worked on the global carbon cycle. And this is a publication from a book. And unfortunately, you can't see the date for the publication, which is 18, 1987. And back then, the scale on this graph for CO2 only went as high as 355 parts per million. That was back in 1987. Well, what's our concentration as of yesterday? And this is for the concentration at Mauna Loa. In the island of Hawaii, where we've been measuring this continuously for a long time because of the brilliance of a guy named Charles Keeling back in the 1950s who set up a shack on top of the mountain and began measuring CO2. Almost lost his funding, federal funding, several times, but persisted. The Keeling curve is magical. I think every, every scientist should have it. that on one of their t-shirts, for sure, <laughs> the Keeling curve, because that includes data from Keeling's work. But what's astonishing to me is that back in the early 80s, a graph in a book was fine going up to 355 for the, X, for the y-axis, but today we're at 406. And that's during the time when I was a scientist this has occurred. This is astonishing, and it's shocking, frankly. So now we have a chance for a musical interlude. There's never been a, a more pressing moment in science for scientists to better communicate and effectively communicate what they are doing, what they know to the public. And that includes K-12 school kids, this audience, people in Washington, Sacramento, Fairbanks. Scientists are taking this seriously now, are doing a better job for sure. There's been training underway now for about the last 15 years. Scientists are getting trained to become better speakers, to speak to an audience of people that are not necessarily climatologists or ecosystem ecologists or biogeochemists. And there are all types of communication. We know about papers in the peer-reviewed literature. We know about books. We know about talks like this. But now there's some new ways of communicating. There are blogs, podcasts. There's Twitter. Jay up here in the front, we, we follow each other. I learned a lot from Jay about things happening in his area. We have Twitter, Facebook, other ways of communicating. And yes, this has even entered the rap world. And so I have to play this. <laughs> Baba Brinkman. Anybody know about Baba Brinkman? Yeah. Well, here we go. We'll start the rap. And there may be enough time to play the whole thing because this, I have a bit more time than I expected. So here we go. You're ready for some Baba Brinkman? It's actually scientifically accurate, too. Way back in the greenhouse, we heat it up. Now we gotta figure it out. Yeah, yeah. And though we may not be around, it all goes down. 
to the 1800s up in here when we only had 290 CO2 parts per million in the atmosphere. We had one billion homo sapiens on the planet trying to get the groove on, and soon lots of them would, thanks to industrial revolution. Joseph Fourier was a Frenchman, a physicist and a mathematician who discovered the fact that the atmosphere acts like a blanket for heat retention. The greenhouse effect first described in 1824, visible light from the sun meets little resistance inbound cause the size of the wavelengths is hella tight but then when it hits the earth it emits infrared radiation with longer waves and they get trapped and bounce back when they try to escape on their way back up into space in the 1860s John Tyndall investigated methane and CO2 and water vapor to see whether any of them block infrared radiation they all do but methane and water vapor don't stick around in the atmosphere for long it took a Swedish genius to identify carbon dioxide as a regulator's Fonte Arrhenius 1896 Fonte did the math if you double the level of CO2 gas you get a 5 to 6 degree temperature increase all across the map in the greenhouse we heat it up now we gotta figure it out yeah yeah and though we may not be around it all goes down I know that what we do now we live on and on and on and on in 1927, Arenas died, a celebrated Swedish civilian. And three years later, the population of planet Earth exceeded 2 billion. In 1938, a British engineer by the name of Guy Callender discovered a rise in carbon dioxide and also measured a rise in temperature. In 1958, Roger Revelle demonstrated that the oceans couldn't take care of it. He said humans are now carrying out a massive geophysical experiment. In 1960, Charles Keeling did some measurements on Mount Aloha carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and every year the level appeared to go up it was rising at a steady rate the same rate as emissions from us burning oil and coal also in 1960 the population hit 3 billion souls and it only took 56 years to get more than 7 billion in the same boat all hooked on fossil fuels like a drug and how we gonna quit huh just say no we started at under 300 now it's more than 400 parts per million and it can't go up much more before Bunch of tipping points get to kicking in So either we set a carbon budget With a fixed cap and we stay within the limit Or else we can expect a catastrophic greenhouse effect And that's physics In the greenhouse We heat it up Now we gotta figure it out Anyway I mean Obviously Bobber Brinkman should be here right now For that but you know, the, the reality is that it's factually accurate. It's amazingly accurate, actually. And so it's a great rap song. It makes me want to dance. Um, I would have if you weren't here. Um, <laughs> well, maybe just a few of you. But, um, but it, it's a great song. And he has a whole series of songs about climate change issues. And it, I like it because, frankly, if I were, I like listening to it now, and I'm an older person, of course, if I were young, I'd listen to it. And guess what? It's correct. It's not alternative facts, actually. It's pretty amazing. So anyway, that's a, a rap song, which I really like a lot. OK, uh, here's the future. In a way, this shouldn't be a fact, because it's a forecast. But boy, if it doesn't happen, the, the laws of physics don't apply any longer. So I, I'm going to call it a fact, um, in, in part because we know the oceans are going to release some of that stored heat. And a lot's been stored by the oceans. It's going to come back to the air above the ocean surface. That's going to happen. 
and how much? Well, you know, there have been lots of forecasts about future climate change, and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, my Bible, basically, for climate change information, has done a number of forecasts over the years. Uh, next to the last one was done in 2007. One came out in 2013. But the forecasts are very similar in terms of the future. And so I'm going to use one from 2007. It's the one that came out in 13 is real similar. And, uh, you know, what, what these models incorporate is information about fuel mixtures and population size and the, uh, you know, the nature of number of countries that are developed or not. And the mid-range scenario is the one that's right there, which assumes that population peaks around 2050. Right now, it's 7.5 billion on the planet, by the way. Um, and that there is a balance of clean energy, non-fossil fuel, and fossil fuels by 2050. That's the assumption here. And again, the, the forecasts are pretty similar. If you look at the most recent one from the most recent assessment from the Intergovernmental, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And what you see is a range of forecast rise in temperature between 1 and about 5 degrees centigrade. Now, the most recent one goes up to 6, actually. It's a little bit more. Um, so that's the spread. That's a big spread, of course. Um, but even a rise of one degree centigrade is troubling. And at this point, we're certainly looking at least two and probably more. And keep in mind that centigrade and Fahrenheit are not the same. Uh, roughly multiply by two and you'll get the rise in mean annual temperature in Fahrenheit. Um, as a former Alaskan, this troubles me because the Arctic is warming up about twice as fast or twice as much as the planet on average. And so I double those numbers to figure out what's going to happen in Port Fairbanks, Alaska. And so there, the temperature rise in terms of mean annual temperature would be between 2 and maybe 10 degrees um, Fahrenheit. I'm sorry, 2 and 10 degrees centigrade. And uh, that is simply astonishing in Fahrenheit. Um, there will be a change in the landscape there. Um, it, Fairbanks is in the boreal forest, white spruce, black spruce, birches. There will be a transition of species there, be more parkland-like more like parts of some of the provinces in Canada, where you have tree islands potentially, but also a lot of non-tree um, non species. This is troubling to me. And then here is just a projection for the globe. And of course, you see that it's a lot uh, more elevated, amplified in the Arctic. And the reason for that, by the way, is the Arctic ice cap is shrinking. And so there's not as much reflectivity of energy. It's going back to outer space. Also, the troposphere is a bit thinner up there, so it warms more quickly. So number nine. I could have talked about impacts all night. It could be a semester. Uh, where do I think the impacts are going to be the greatest? Well, obviously the Arctic, because I'm from there. But that's also, impacts will be severe there. Subtropics. Why? Because they're going to, they're going to suffer much more drought. And a warmer world is a wetter world, but the distribution by latitude will change. So the subtropics be a lot drier, higher latitudes, wetter. But if you're in Southern California or if you're in some of the countries in South Africa that are dry, it's going to get a lot drier, unfortunately. Coastline, sea level rise. And I thought it was amazing when I came and I saw this. You know, the paper today, Med River Union article, Arcata will protect, accommodate, and retreat from rising sea waters. And I looked at one of the reports recently on how much sea level will rise in Eureka. I guess the mid-range forecast by the, by the year 2100 is around a meter. And that's pretty disturbing, frankly, for someone who just moved here. <laughs> and then also coral reefs, which we know about. So to, to kind of dramatize for me, or to maybe make it seem more real, 
an impact on the Arctic. I think about the Arctic a lot, always will. This is a time lapse for the change in the polar ice cap from 1984 to present. And just before I start, the white is, is ice that's four years of age or older, multi-year ice. And the lightest is ice that's younger. And what you're going to see, I liken this to a heart. For me, this is the heart of the Arctic. Because you'll see the ice grow in the winter and shrink in the summer. And you'll see that growing and shrinking. People in the Arctic depend upon the ice. Animals and plants depend upon the ice. It's part of the culture, part of the psyche of a person that lives in the Arctic. And watch how it's changed. This is the so-called Fram Strait over here. This is Svalbard, by the way. And you'll see the, the amount of, of white decreasing over time. This ice forms and thaws every year right here. How do we know this? this? These are satellite images. There's no disputing this evidence. It's from satellite images. And what's astonishing, of course, is the shrinkage and also the fact that there's very little multi-year ice left right now. And not only has the extent been reduced, but the volume has been reduced more so. Been a greater reduction in, in polar volume in terms of the sea ice than in extent. And again, this is affecting the Arctic in many ways. The peoples of the Arctic, the marine mammals, polar bears, transportation on the ice. It's having a profound effect on the Arctic. And I do believe in my lifetime there'll be an ice-free Arctic summer before long in the Arctic Basin. I didn't think that a number of years ago. I think it will happen before I pass on to whatever happens next. I want to honor the first person that tra traversed the Northwest Passage because, of course, you know, when you look at a map like this and you think, well, gosh, the ice is gone. What can we do? Uh, commercial ships now have gone across the Northwest Passage for a while. Um, every year now, it's at least 20, 30, 40 ships now doing it. Uh, this summer, of course, there was another big ship. I'll show a picture in a moment that went through. But the first person who did it was a Norwegian. And I have to honor this man, Raoul Amundsen, Norwegian, who sailed through the passage in that ship over there. Now, you know, Sir John Franklin tried it in the 1800s and didn't make it. Two ships didn't make it. They were frozen in the ice, and all the men died, unfortunately. But Amundsen made it, in part because he had a smaller vessel. And he also took a longer time. It took him three years to do it. And this was his path. Um, this is Greenland up there. This is Victoria Island here. Baffin Island here. And he made it all the way down a river for a while, actually the Yukon. And went all the way around to Nome. And he did this from 1903 to 1906. He also got help from indigenous peoples along the way to help with food. And he could move, maneuver quite nicely around ice flows. Amundsen was the first one. Now, that's a tricky thing to do. And I want to give you some sense of the power of ice because this accomplishment is really phenomenal. So here's another video. And now I think I can do it, Jay. Thanks. This is a short video that gives you some sense of the power of ice. It's really strong and it's also really noisy. Feel this the ship, the uh, chunk that we're on actually starting to fail a bit more. Probably hairline cracks up the um, towards okay. the helos there. So does that mean we should back up? No, not yet. <laughs> you always jump over a crack. Power is astonishing, and it really is remarkable that Amundsen made it. And, and to me, it sounds like a freight train, frankly, all the time. 
And you can see why ships have gotten crushed by this ice. This is the Eura. This is the ship that he sailed across the Northwest Passage in, the Eura. And if any, anyone Norwegian here? Yeah. How am I doing with Eura? Close? Okay, can you say it for me? No. No, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so that is the humble Eura, the first ship to cross the Northwest Passage. Now, in contrast, this is the Crystal Serenity um, that went across in roughly 30 days this summer. Minimum fee was $10,000. You could dine on caviar. Yes, you could. And you could cruise on this through the Northwest Passage. Now, of course, native peoples are worried. Um, governments are worried because there are not many Coast Guard facilities along the northern rim of the Arctic Ocean. We don't have really the infrastructure in place right now to rescue people from a ship like this if they were to need help, if they were in trouble. And this is becoming more commonplace. Finally to number 10. This is something to keep in mind. Uh, we are experiencing abrupt climate change right now, and it's not new in the Earth's history at all. Uh, climate change is not new, neither is abrupt climate change. And here is one that was pretty dramatic, and any geologist here would probably know about this. This is the Younger Dryas from ice cores taken in Greenland a major um, drop in temperature and rise in temperature. This is 15,000 years ago when the Northern Hemisphere started coming out of the last ice age. So you see, look at the green, a rise in temperature as the world started warming, Northern Hemisphere started warming. Then a severe stair step down to a drop, and then a incredibly precipitous rise in temperature, a rise of 10 degrees centigrade in apparently as few as 10 years. That's phenomenal, it's phenomenal. There have been some other changes in temperature, clearly, but nothing quite abrupt, as abrupt as the Younger Dryas in recent history. So 12,000 years ago, what was society like? And to, this gave me some perspective. I took a trip some years ago to a little town in northern Norway called Alta. And there's a great museum in Alta that has rocks that were uncovered by farmers a long time ago when they started to till a hillside, and they uncovered rocks from people that had lived there a long time ago. And the rocks were like this. You can't see the inscriptions that well. But these were carved between four and 6,000 years ago. And the museum inside has some that have been colored in so you can see things better, reindeer. There are some that show people dancing in a circle. It's so wonderful, frankly. So is humanity. What was society like back then, 12,000 years ago? It was Paleolithic. The point I want to make here is that back then, there wasn't a great deal to lose if there was abrupt climate change. Most likely, you moved. There were no cities. This is pre-agriculture. And things, of course, are different now. We have a lot to lose. This is New York. Sea level rise is a big issue there. It's Hurricane Sandy's subway stations were flooded. There were great photographs of all the water pouring down the stairways and subways. And here's a list of all the cities in the world that are vulnerable to sea level rise. Huge number of people. Right now, Alaskan villages are being relocated, but the population there for Shishmaref is on the order of hundreds of people. We're talking millions of people here. And some of these countries uh, don't have as much capacity to fund some of this. And certainly if you're a Bangladeshi city, you simply don't have the money. The Dutch have figured it out. But to adjust to sea level rise for these cities is an incredible amount of money that's going to be required and a lot of planning and thought and, most importantly, political will. So I said it on a helpful note, hopeful note, and I will, because I'm a hopeful person. What can you do? Again, there's climate fatigue, and it's easy to get depressed about this subject. I'll just be candid with you. I'm not. I'm very worried about the future, but there are things we can do. We're a smart species. 
We have educated people. We have universities. And sometimes we actually have the collective political will to do something. So we can change. I do have optimism. So here are my top five things you can do. First, learn about climate change. It's complicated, obviously. I look at NASA, NOAA, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change websites. Um, I like Skeptical Science as a website. The Times, The Post, The Guardian. You know, the biggest question is, what is the trustworthiness of your sources? In my view, these are trustworthy. My favorite book, this book here, and I, I'm not promoting this for this author either, or the publisher, but I love this book, The Thinking Person's Guide to Climate Change by Robert Henson. It's accurate. Um, he's based in Boulder, Colorado. It's well-written. It's superb. It's great for a scientist or somebody who's not a scientist. So learn more about climate change. Number two, consider reading about cognitive science and how it affects people's views about something that's polarizing. And there's a, a guy at Yale University, an attorney named Dan Cahan, who's thought a lot about how our value systems shape our feelings about climate change, our beliefs, and basically our assessment of empirical data about climate change. So think about cognitive science and how it affects our views about climate change. Education is most important. And I think it should start in kindergarten, frankly. I think that climate science literacy, climate change literacy should be a requirement, an expectation, should be something that our society does through high school and into university. I haven't talked to anybody here at Humboldt yet about this, but I think that climate change literacy should be a G requirement for every Humboldt State University student. I'll say that. I went on a limb on that one, President Rosbacher. <laughs> <laughs> Be skeptical, but be objectively skeptical. That's what scientists do, right? We're skeptical about everything, even ourselves and our work. We try to disprove our own work all the time. That's what science is about. Not proving things, it's what, to see whether or not your idea about something stands up to evidence and further scrutiny by others and by yourself. So exercise skepticism fine, but maintain your objectivity. And most importantly, don't give up hope. We can't afford that. The stakes are too big. And also our ability to affect positive change and to respond to this is too important. Um, and your capability is too high. So my last message is don't give up hope. And that's it. Thanks very much. Thank you, Rich Boone. Thank you so much. Does anybody have questions? If you have questions, we always do Q&A at the end because everybody needs to know a little bit more. So who wants to start? Do I see a hand right there? All right. Um, what would you say about the belief that um, some people mention that climate change is not man-made because of the, the mini um, ice age, like the medieval warming period and like the growing grapes in England? What would you have to say about that? I mean, we can explain most of the variations in temperature in the past, but what's different now, of course, is that humans have changed a gas in the atmosphere that traps long-wave radiation. My view is that, you know, the things that have changed uh, during the last 200 years, more than anything else, has been the concentration of greenhouse gases, and the biggest one being CO2. And that CO2 is coming from us. Hi, thank you for your talk. I am a, a middle school educator, and I've had to defend some of these graphs or explain some of them. And um, 
volcanic eruptions would come up. So I, I actually had two questions. One was, could you speak to the effect of the Krakatoa sure. um, volcanic event and its effect, and, and actually its effect on any climate doubters? Um, and then, but the other question was about readings just in kind of, um, what would you call it, like recreational science, the Bill Bryson uh, short History of Nearly Everything, yeah, yeah. which I think is a great book, and I believe it was there that I heard posited that um, an uncharacteristically cool summer um, leading to increased evaporation and cloud cover, a few reflective events like that with increased albedo effect could lead to, you know, that's why it went from global warming to climate change was that unanticipated effects could um cause reflectivity but it sounds right. like i'm hearing the ocean influences too much but i was hoping you could speak to yeah. that yeah well there are two things one the volcano question absolutely you know, volcanic eruptions cause cooling pinatubo um great example of that krakatoa um you know what's going up in the atmosphere aerosols little particles basically crystals you know sulfate nitrate things like that that are my view and i say this to my students maybe totally inaccurate scientific like little mirrors in a sense you know and, and so it increases the reflectivity of the atmosphere. So absolutely, when there's a volcanic eruption, temperatures do decline, absolutely. And in fact, one thing I've thought about with fossil fuels making cleaner, aerosol emissions are going to go down a bit. So in a way, the warming effect is going to be greater as we have cleaner energy from fossil fuels. If you look at the, the factors that cause warming and cooling, the, the cooling effect of clouds is significant, but it's still dwarfed by the warming effects of the greenhouse gases. Um, so as the, warm, as the world does get warm, there'll be more cloud cover. But the reason why clouds are reflective is primarily because of the aerosol concentrations more than anything else. Because they cause the formation of smaller water droplets, which are also more reflective. So the effect of clouds is significant as a cooling effect, but it's still dwarfed by the warming effect of greenhouse gases. I'm right here. <laughs> I found that one of the most difficult topics to bring up um, when speaking with a climate change denier is when to act, how to act, and changing our ways. And I was just wondering if you would have any suggestions for opening up that conversation yeah. in a way that's not abrasive. I think any conversation, whether it's a denier who's opposed to your views or anyone, you know, any conversation is based upon respect for each other. And I think you can't have any dialogue without respect. I think another thing is to determine whether you have common shared values of some. Most people have some shared values. And I think if you can establish that trust initially with a conversation, then people are a bit less polarized in their views, or their conversation approach, at least. Um, so I think establishing some common values for discussion, but always respecting the other person, even if you disagree with them strongly. And then the last thing I always suggest to people is, again, look at the data. You know, a denier you know, may deny things, but if they see data, the Eureka data show a trend. Now, it could have been, I didn't know until I got the data from Troy Nicolini this morning what, was going, what Eureka was going to do. It could have been a decline. I had no idea. Do I think, did I think that Eureka was warming? I had no clue. I was guessing it probably was warming, but I didn't know because you have the marine layer coming in all the time. So, I, would, I actually, believe it or not, I could not find that graph anywhere else. We have all these educated people here who are interested in climate change, and I could not find a good source of information on historical trends and the mean annual temperature for either Arcata or Eureka. And I looked pretty darn hard. I, I called Troy up this morning, and he generated that graph in an hour for me. Well, I think we should all be able to get it really quickly, of course, if we wanted to. So I would say to the denier, show me the data. You know, um, and I'm a scientist. That's what I'm going to ask for. Um, but also in conversation, again, it comes down to respect and also some shared values. My name's Tim, and I wanted to 
you, t you mentioned the example of clearing a forest right area yeah. and that that causes cooling. That's sort of counterintuitive, I think, to what a lot of people might think. Absolutely. Uh, but you know, the bottom line is a field is more reflective than a forest. Okay. I'm, a pasture is more yeah. reflective than a forest. And so you do, you do change the reflectivity properties of the, of the ground, the, the landscape. If you go from a very a landscape with a forest that traps a lot more heat, energy, than a landscape that's reflective. So it, it's, it's, it's what, well, what about the that. carbon offset of uh, you well, there's carbon trees offsets and plants, too. Uh, there are carbon offsets, of carbon, course. Of and course. then you get rid of them. And of course. I mean, normally when a forest is cleared, what happens to the wood? It's burned. Or it's pushed aside and slashed and decomposes. So there's certainly a CO2 release from the biomass that's removed from the forest to create the tilled area or the pasture area. Absolutely. There's a CO2 released. But beyond that point, the tilled field will be more reflective and will have a net cooling effect compared to the parcel when it was occupied by trees. It is counterintuitive. Think about it when you fly over the landscape in the summer and you look at those brown fields. They're a lot more reflective than a forest canopy. So probably about a decade ago, I heard about a theory that potentially if lots of the Greenland ice cap melts, it might cause the jet stream to shut down and that might put us into ice age rather than warming. What's the status of that theory at this point? Boy, you'll have to help me with that one. Um, I don't know. There are lots of theories out there, of course. Um, and it, there are some theories that may have, be based somewhat in fact. I haven't heard that one yet. Uh, what I have heard about are changes in what's called the thermal haline circulation pattern, a major ocean circulation pattern that basically helps Europe be as warm as it is. And if that were the shutdown because of maybe fresh water pouring into the North Atlantic from melting glacial ice in Greenland, that perhaps that could shut down for a while and it would cool Europe for a while, absolutely. We don't understand very well yet what causes the change in that thermohaline circulation pattern. It does shut down from time to time, it has before, it will again, but we don't really know. But one theory is if you have a lot of hot, cold water, not, sorry, fresh water moving to the North Atlantic, the water there doesn't subside because it's not as dense, basically. So there are lots of theories, and that's the thing about this field. It's easy to come up with theories, but I always come back to go back to the data. You know, what do the data say? You know, what do you know based upon first principles in physics more than anything else? So it, that's why it's hard sometimes to refute someone because you don't know where they're coming from, and you have no idea, you know, where this, basically, you know, if they have any basis for their theory, essentially. Early in your talk, you mentioned earth wobbability. What is the impact, if any, of the Arctic and Antarctica both melting yeah. and that weight being now distributed over the yeah. waters of the, you know, in a different manner. Yeah, yeah. Are we going to wobble? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 the ice, of course, melts. And it basically, you know, you know so the, the weight, I guess there's going to be some export of water potentially. I don't, I'm not sure that's even true. I think the issue would really be Antarctica with the loss of the ice sheet. And there, I have no clue. And I might turn to a geologist for that an answer to that question. I know there's some here, but I won't put them on the spot. Um, uh, because I think it, my view is it, perhaps it's possible in Antarctica, but I don't know whether that'll affect the wobble or not. I would think it would affect it to a small degree, but not much. Yeah. Hi, my name is Chuck. Thank you for your talk tonight. It was, it was great. My question goes back to the Keeling chart that you had. Yeah. I think I remember from a few years back hearing that we had crossed a threshold. A little perspective, at 406, how far are we above that threshold? Where do you think it's going to go, and how much more difficult will it make our tasks? I think the threshold was just set at 400, just because it was a nice number. 
frankly. I don't think it had any other meaning to it. Um, I think people didn't think we'd approach it for quite a long time still. Um, I mean, when I began my work on this, it was like 330 or something, and you know, pre-industrial 275. So I think people just liked the number 400 and said, are we ever gonna approach it? Well, we're now above it. How high will it go? I think it depends upon society, frankly. At, at the rate we're going, it's gonna keep rising for a while. Um, so my hope is at some point it'll stop rising. Uh, some countries are doing a better job than others with respect to reducing CO2 emissions. Uh, many European countries are doing a great job, but the world in general has work to do. So uh, I don't know how high it will go. I could speculate, but that's not very helpful. We, uh, we're, we are out of time. Um, if you want more, we actually have a stash of these lectures on the podcast. You can subscribe at iTunes. Just go to khsu.org. And we will be back here. Does anybody know uh, psychology professor Melinda Myers? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. She's so, so great. Um, so she's going to be here next month. So we hope to have you back. On behalf of Humboldt State University, just give it up one more time for Dr. Rich Boone. Good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is our show. You can go over to khsu.org to see the links that he just referenced. Also, pictures of Nordic stone carvings. You'll see videos of temperature maps. You'll see climate-based hip-hop and much more. Special thanks to Troy Nicolini of the National Weather Service, also Arcata Main Street, Baba Brinkman, Lost Coast Light and Sound, and of course, Dr. Rich Boone. Our producers are Nancy Stevenson, Frank Whitlatch, and myself. Our recording engineer is Mark Jeffers, and our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira. Don't forget to subscribe to the My Favorite Lecture podcast at iTunes, and you can learn more at khsu.org. Thanks.